I'm going to continue on with my storytelling uh, that I introduced each devotional this past week. And it's a continued story about our friend by the name of, yes, Michael. And I would ask that uh, you bear with me. Some of you were not on the missions trip, and so some of the uh, metaphors and analogy may escape you, and, and that's fine. Just do your best as you follow this, and allow God, if you would, to speak to your hearts. My name is Michael, and this is my story. Even though I lived in the kingdom of the great king, we often had our excursions into the outlands. We, we, we called them the scorched lands because there were constantly fires in these lands. There were fires everywhere, fires that hurt, that brought pain, and yes, even brought death. The fires were our curse. And how well I remember those fires. See, I had been a fire starter. I had been burned, and yet Yeshua had healed me of my scars and of my burns. And I knew well what it was to be a satanista. The fire that burned within and without. Yeshua had ministered my story. He had healed my scars, my addictions, my shame, and my guilt. He had washed all of that away. You know, the hardest thing to receive healing in, though, was when I realized I had burned someone else, especially my own family. And left scars that Yeshua needed to heal. And so because of this and, and the story that Yeshua had built in me, I wanted to be able to tell others, and especially my neighbor. My neighbor, my neighbor was a fire starter. Oh, yes. And I can remember sharing my story with him many times. And as I would catch his look my way, because many times he would look down, I could see tears in his eyes. I shared my story many times with him. But he was a fire starter. And he burned many people, and he especially burned his family, and most especially his son. His son, some say, wasn't even really his son. I, I, I don't know. I don't judge the man. But when you are a burn victim, you tend to burn others. And his son burned many. At times, even my daughter. Now, it, it was never severe. I, I never let it get beyond that. I, I would always be stepping in. But a transformation began in, in my daughter, and, and she loved to be able to reach out to this neighbor. But his son had learned so well from his father being a severe burned victim himself. I had always stepped in, never allowing my daughter much pain. 
except that one day. I remember that one. Sam Bello was only eight years old. Wiley was 14. And he was pure evil. Now, I'm sorry, pure evil is a metaphor in my land of you could see the fire in his eyes. You could see the enemy. He was a fire starter, just like his old man. Zambella was so pure, so innocent. And many times she would share her story, even at eight years of age, with Wiley. And, and he, would, he would eventually begin to mock her. And yet she loved Yeshua so much and longed for his burns to be healed just as hers had been. And I encouraged her. I said, Sambella, please understand. He has the fire in his eyes. I'm not sure he will ever turn. But she never gave up. And on that day, she was speaking to him and pursuing him rather insistently, and he began to taunt her, even mocking her, and he had begun a fire. Some say that she had slipped and fallen in. Others say he had pushed her in. But I remember that day, the screams that set fear and terror in my heart. And as soon as I heard them, I knew something had happened to my Sambella. And I ran with every bit of energy in me. And as I saw her, I reached into the fire. And I pulled her out. And I brought her to my chest, hoping that I would be able to put that fire out. And as I held her close to my chest, with eyes half open, she looked up at me. And said as, as if it were a question, Daddy. And then her body went limp in my arms. I was overwhelmed with emotion and fears, and I, I crumpled to the ground with her in my arms, this lifeless body, a little girl of only eight years old in my arms, and I laid her on the ground. began to feel that fire again in my heart. And it began to rage. I, I asked, how did this happen? And, and why did this happen? And I was angry. And I said, Yeshua, would you help me? I don't understand. Why would you allow this tragedy in my life? And at that moment, I felt again his hand against my chest. I felt the warmth against the fire. And his hand began to still and quench that fire. And he spoke very softly into my heart and he said, Michael, do you trust me? I said, Lord, of course I trust you. I've been trusting you since the day that I first called you. And you healed me. You rescued me. I trust you. I wouldn't doubt you now. And he said, no. Michael, I'm asking you right now, 
do you trust me? And then I knew what he was asking of me. And as I laid Sanbella on the ground, I hovered over her as if to protect her. And emotions began to come up and, and, and retching upon the ground, this emotion everywhere as I agonized, calling Yeshua, calling upon him, praying intensely. Those gathered around didn't understand, but I prayed. They asked if they could help, but I prayed. They asked if they might comfort me, but I prayed. They asked if they could somehow cover her burned body, and I said no, and I prayed. They began to mock me in my tragedy. But I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And some said it was an hour, and others said, no, it was, it was hours. But I prayed. And then I heard Yeshua speak to my heart, and he said this. He said, speak the words of life. And as I knelt before her and I laid my hands on her, I said, Sanbella, in the name of Yeshua, be healed and breathe life. And immediately her body sat up and the scarred were scared. And joy leapt in my heart as I embraced her. And with her eyes wide open, she looked up at me and said, and not with a question this time, but with joy, Daddy. And I was so emotional, and I, I began to weep as I held her. And as I opened my eyes, there at arm's length was Wiley kneeling down, and he was weeping. I reached out my hand. I rested it on his shoulder, and I said, Wiley, I forgive you. Right now, would you allow Yeshua to heal you and forgive you too? And he nodded with his head down and wept some more. And he looked up and there was no fire in his eyes. My name is Michael. And this is his story. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 12. 
we are talking about a culture of prayer. And God in our day, and yes, in our church, is wanting to stretch us. And he's going to do this by placing us in situations where it is absolutely imperative that we rely upon him in this drama of grace in yours and my lives. God is going to regularly bring us and purposefully bring us to those places and circumstances in our life where we cannot, we cannot fix the problem as hard as we try. We will try to come up with an answer and it's as if we will be brain dead. We will try to do anything and everything we can and yet we will come with no answer, nothing. And God will cause us to fully and completely rely upon him. And it is that moment that he will pour out his grace because he gives grace to the humble. And that place of humility is best seen in what I am going to call this morning a culture of prayer. You see, a culture of prayer is more than just us showing up uh, Tuesday mornings at 7 o'clock for prayer or before service. For prayer, or during life group for prayer after our Bible study and ministry. A culture of prayer is an attitude. It is something that God breeds in us. And I can only say I believe that Elijah had this attitude of prayer, that is, complete and total reliance upon God expressed in prayer, expressed in this conversation with the Heavenly Father. And it was more than just as the Jews would do three times a day. Remember Daniel praying three times a day? Very customary. But an attitude of prayer, a culture of prayer goes beyond that. And that is what I believe God is wanting to develop in our midst. Now last week we looked at Elijah and that culture of prayer was such a part of his life that I would have to say that it was, it was so far beyond mine. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit this. But the truth is when he prayed, he didn't just pray, God bring rain, and then walk away and say, okay, God, it's, it's up to you. You know, I've done my part, now you do your part. But he prayed seven times until he prayed. Until God answered. Seven times until God answered. And our friend Michael here prayed for hour or, or hours because he truly believed that God was going to do a miracle. And, and I base that on a story that is told hundreds of years ago by a, uh, a Presbyterian man in Scotland who, uh, very prophetic by the way, contrary to the present beliefs of many Presbyterians in our day, but he moved in the prophetic strongly, and he moved in signs and wonders. And a close, wealthy man of his, friend of his had died, and for three days, no lie, for three days he remained in his room, and he prayed, and on the third day, God resurrected that man. I would have to say after the first hour, I probably would have got given up if I even prayed for an hour. The guy's dead, come on. But he had been sick for a while and the man had attended him. And for whatever reason, God had allowed him to die. Obviously, for God to display his glory. But I have to ask myself the question, is this the type of attitude in my heart? For Elijah, it was. 
He was persistent and insistent in his praying. And the result was God sent rain. James 5, 17 and 18 says this is called uh, earnest prayer. And in the Greek, it literally reads, in praying, he prayed. And all that means is he really prayed. He really prayed. And I have to be honest with you, uh, many of us, not just myself, we would have given up after the first or second prayer and said, okay, whatever. Now, some of us would do this because we would say that um, maybe God just isn't powerful enough or we just get discouraged and we stop believing that God is a God of answered prayer. Let me just share a little story here with you. It says there was a small Kentucky town that had two churches and one whiskey distillery. Members of both churches complained that the distillery gave the community a bad image. On top of this, the owner of the distillery was an atheist. They had tried to shut down the place but were unsuccessful. At last, they decided to hold a joint Saturday night prayer meeting. They would ask God to intervene. Saturday night came, and all through the prayer meeting, a terrible electric storm raged. To the delight of the church, to, to, uh, church members, lightning struck the distillery, and it burned to the ground. Woohoo! Next morning, the sermons in both churches were on the power of prayer. Fire insurance adjusters promptly notified the distillery owner they would not pay for his damages. The fire was caused by a, quote, act of God, they said, and covered and coverage for acts of God were excluded in the policy. Whereupon the distillery owner sued all the church members claiming they had, con they had conspired with God to destroy his building. The defendants denied absolutely that they had done anything to cause the fire. The trial judge observed, now listen to this, I find one thing about this case that is very perplexing to me. We have a situation where the plaintiff, an atheist, is professing his belief in the power of prayer and the defendant's church members are denying the power of prayer. Come on, church, isn't that us? <laughs> Many times weary, denying even the power of prayer. I guess we have to ask ourselves, do we really, truly believe that prayer works? Now, maybe the reason why we would stop after the first or second prayer is just simply that we have failed to grasp the concept of praying through or earnest prayer, what some, are, some call travailing prayer or agonizing prayer or tremendous men, women of God who have written on prayer, who have such awesome insights. They, they label it various things, but it is this earnest prayer that we are looking at. And as we read through Acts 12, I think we're going to see more of what this earnest prayer exactly is like. So let's see this culture of prayer in the early church. Acts chapter 12, I'm going to start with verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as the Passover. 
After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, that is, after that week of religious celebration. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. Church, say that with me. Earnestly praying. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, apparently at the doorway there, and came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened them, it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length, when he had, when they had walked the length of a street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, "Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent His angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating." When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people. Say that with me, church. Many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the, at the outer entrance. Other translations have gate, as if there's a gate and then a door. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she insisted, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Come on, church, get a clue. I know you're thinking that, I'm just saying it. Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had happened or what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they, they be executed. What we see here is a praying church, an earnestly praying church. <laughs> Herod had somehow found delight in executing James, the brother of John, the two sons of Zebedee, disciples, apostles of Jesus Christ. He was put to the sword, and in seeing how the Jews reacted, he thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest and have Peter put to death as well. Now, he had to be fair. There had to be a trial. And so after this Passover, technically Passover is 
on one day and seven days follow called the, un, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But many times the entire week was called the Passover. Not, so it's not just one day. As Luke is using this term, he's talking about the entire festival. And so after the festival, they were waiting, he was going to go on trial. Now the church realized that it would be a very unfair trial. I mean, after all, Peter and John had come before the Sanhedrin before, but this wasn't the Sanhedrin that we're aware of. It was Herod himself, a cruel man. And they knew that Peter's fate would be just like James. And so they prayed. The very last day of the feast, they gathered and they prayed. The first thing I want us to see is that Scripture says that many prayed. You see that there in verse, I'm sorry, right there in verse 12. But as we look over here in verse 5, it says that the church was earnestly praying. And can I say that when they're talking about the church and we see a group there in, in Mary's, John Mark's mom, her home, we have to realize that there were many such homes and that the church was not just simply the praying faithful. The church, as described here, was not just simply the intercessors. It wasn't just simply the leaders. Actually, the leaders are described when Peter says, now go tell James and the other brothers. He wasn't even going to go tell them. He was going to go off to tell the others in other house churches what God had done in sending his angels. And so when we talk about the church, church earnestly the church earnestly praying it, it, am i still on is this okay all right earnestly praying we had a surge of power there when we talk about the church earnestly praying we are talking about the church not just the leaders, not just the intercessors, not just the, the faithful inner circle praying, the ones who were really diligent in pursuing Jesus. The church prayed, and they earnestly prayed. Now, let me just tell you about the numbers, and we get clues from this passage as far as this goes, not just the fact that the church prayed. But here we have an example, the very first place that Peter goes to, it's Mary. I lose track of all the Marys in the New Testament. There's so many of them. And, you know, praise God. Yeah, I married one too. Um, but we, the, the church uh, was gathered in her home. Now, it wasn't the entire church. Of course not. But I do want you to know there was a large crowd there. It not only tells us in verse 12 that there were many gathered there, but she was a wealthy woman. Or maybe her husband was wealthy and he's not in the picture here. We don't know. John Mark was a follower of Jesus Christ. He is actually the one who wrote the gospel according to Mark and a very close, confident, later a traveler with Peter. And tradition tells us that he followed Peter, especially when he was in Rome, and wrote the gospel according to Mark based on everything that Peter had taught. John Mark was close to Peter. At this point in the early church, we don't know just how close, but it is the first place where Peter goes. When he arrives at the house, he knocks on the outer entrance or the gate. The servant is another clue that she was wealthy. The servant 
comes to the door and proceeds out of the house to the gate and realizes, oh my goodness, it's Peter. And so the scriptures tell us she went back into the house to tell others while Peter is thinking, hello, am I chopped liver? What's going on here? Um, And keeps knocking. And she says, Peter's at the door, and they're thinking, you're out of your mind, girl. I realize it's really late, but Peter can't be at the door. Remember, he's in prison. That's, hello, that's why we're praying. Uh, and they, then traditionally, of, about uh, concerning guardian angels and the Jews at the time, believed this, that they actually looked like the person that they would be protecting. And so they came up with, the, you know, it's got to be his angel. I don't know if the, my angel in heaven that protects me looks like me. God bless you, I hope not. But the truth is, he may, and, and this angel may have looked like Peter. And so, well, it's got to be his angel. It, it couldn't be Peter. He's in prison. And so you get this impression that they live in a, well, she lives in a wealthy home, John Mark, in a wealthy home. And that means that the home is large. Now, and I'm saying this because in, with, the, with those who are wealthy, if you've seen, I don't know, what Ben-Hur, and, and Judah Ben-Hur is a wealthy man, a Jew, wealthy man. And before he comes to Christ, you, you have this scene in which you, you can see the inner court, and, and it's huge. And, and these, the, the Christians were gathered, probably over 100 people could fit in a wealthy person's home, and they were, they were praying. So we know that there were a large number at this house and truly scattered throughout the city. Peter says, you tell James and the brothers, and he went on to another house. Now, we don't know how many houses he went to, but my purpose here is it's more than just the intercessors and leaders. It is the church, and there's a vast number that are praying. And I'm going to tell you, when when there's a culture of prayer in a church, such as Powerline or any church, or the church as a whole in the city of Sanford or Lake Mary, the people, not just the intercessors or the leaders or the select few or the ones who are really pressing in, it's the church prays. And there is just prevailing attitude within Jesus' body, within his church of prayer. And constantly, prayer becomes this natural knee-jerk reaction within the church. And when something like this happens, everybody prays. They don't just send out a prayer chain. One person knocks on the door and runs to the other and knocks on the door and knocks on the other, next door. And before you know it, everyone's praying. They gathered together. Now, maybe they did that during the week, but this night, they knew it was happening and the church gathered because there was a culture of prayer and total reliance upon God. And only God could make this evil go away. Only God could step into this situation that was beyond their ability to fix and change it and rescue Peter. And so they prayed. They didn't just pray. They earnestly prayed. I would suggest also that in this culture of prayer, they prayed throughout the night. It says here that Peter was asleep. Now, it's possible Peter got bored in the evening after watching, you know, I don't know, a show of the Brady Bunch or something, I'd probably get bored too. But, you know, he, he could have fallen asleep early in the evening. But I'm going to suggest to you is in the wee hours of the morning for this reason. 
that when the angel appeared, it says his light, the glory of that angel, his, caused his light to fill the cell in which Peter was in. And there was a, a guard on both sides of him, and he was chained to them. And they said nothing. Why? Because they were asleep. And I want to tell you this. <laughs> you fall asleep on duty, and something happens on your watch, you get put to death. And that's why Herod had all four soldiers executed. They fell asleep on their watch. Now, let's also realize that there were not just two guards, but there were four squads of four soldiers each. So they each had a shift of six hours, two chained to Peter, and two just outside the door. Maybe one was just outside the door, one a little bit further down the hallway, we don't know, but two were outside the door. Not only are the two next to him asleep, and we know this because the light shone in the room and they did nothing, so they are in, they're in massive REM stage right now. And they are gone. They are dead to the world. They're in la-la land. And we also know this because the angel doesn't just reach over and say, Hey, Peter, Peter, wake up. It says that he hit him. <laughs> the angel just reeled back and bam, knocks him one. And Peter, he, I'm sure he was, he was gone in la-la land too, deep REM sleep. And he wakes up, he's jolted, and he thinks he's still dreaming. And the chains fall off his wrists and his feet. Well, this is pretty cool. And the angel says, quick, get up. No, he doesn't, I don't think he whispers, quick, get up. You don't want to wake him up. He doesn't whisper to them. He says, quick, get up. And this still doesn't wake up the soldier. Man, they are really gone. The soldiers outside don't hear anything. They don't look inside. Well, what's going on in there? The doors open, and no doubt those soldiers are asleep as well. Why? Because they could not keep their eyes open so early in the wee hours of the morning. Now, I mention this to us because these Followers of Jesus Christ cared little about being inconvenienced. Can I ask you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have prayed through an entire night? You have prayed through an entire night. I have to admit, I'm not sure that I have ever prayed through an entire night. Because that would mean at least seven hours or more. I'm not sure I've done that before. The church did. The church did because they cared little about being inconvenienced because prayer was not this huge mammoth effort and inconvenience to them. Because they loved one another and they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that prayer was powerful. And that this culture of prayer had bred within them. And they immediately went to their knees and they prayed. Now, I'm not saying that God answered their prayers exactly the way they had prayed. We'll see this later. But they prayed. 
And whether they were inconvenienced or not, it didn't matter. They prayed and they prayed. This Greek word for earnest, ektenes. Yes, it means earnest. It means fervent and intense. It means to stretch out. Now think about that. How on earth could this Greek word that means to stretch out mean earnest? Because here's why. When you pray and you are praying in earnest, it will stretch you. It will pull you out of where you feel comfortable, of those things that you like, like sleep. Or me may call you to fast. Anybody here like food? I know I do. I'm probably going to have a good meal this afternoon at the barbecue. I'm going to enjoy it. I like to eat. But God has called me to extensive fasting at times. And can I confess to you, I really do not like that. I'm so glad that in heaven, at least to my understanding of the Bible, we don't have to fast. (laughs) But the truth is, prayer will inconvenience you and it will stretch you so that when you are stretched, your mindset is not, wow, God, you're really stretching me. It's like, well, this is what Christians do, right? This is, this is what we do. This, this is how we live our life. It's our lifestyle. Of course it's inconvenient. It's like the mom or dad who wakes up at 2 in the morning and gets really angry because he's got to go get the baby to, to be fed. It's like, well, hello. Welcome to daddy and mommyhood. This is par for the course. You wait until they're sick and they wake you up every hour. Okay, this is just what it means to be a mom or a dad. This is what it means to be a Christian and press in in earnest prayer seeking God because we we know and we are convinced that God answers prayer and that he comes in and he does miracles beyond our comprehension because we, by faith, we embrace this. So church, tell you what. If there is going to be a culture of prayer, a power line, you are going to be inconvenienced because you will be stretched and I will be stretched. And may God give us grace and me especially for when we are stretched. Earnest prayer is intense prayer. It is also bold, even insistent. You remember the parable of the man coming to his friend's house and it's in the middle of the night. And he comes to him because a friend of his had come in from out of town and he wanted to give him something to eat. (laughs) Middle of the night. Buddy, I understand that you're my friend, but you're just going to have to sack out because we are going to bed. But this, this friend wanted to feed him, and so he went to another friend and said, I don't know, he probably he knocked on the door and he didn't answer, so he started throwing stones at his, at, at, at his window. I, I don't know, but he eventually wakes him up and the guy comes to, he didn't throw stones, I'm kidding. He, went, he goes to the window and he says, I'm paraphrasing, dude, what do you want at midnight? Are you serious? And the guy s- explains to him the situation and Jesus tells us in the parable, he says, his friend will get him what he needs because of his bold persistence. I'm not sure I would call someone at 12 at night, hey, you know what? I need a loaf. I need a couple of loaves of bread. Donald, hey, bro, you got some bread there? And he's thinking, who is this? (laughs) But the guy gives him the bread and he goes on his way because he was bold and he was insistent. See, prayer is insistent. 
Now, there's one Greek word that covers both the boldness and the insistence aspects there in that parable. But intensive, earnest prayer will be insistent. You remember Jacob as he is fleeing Laban and he's coming back home. And he sends his family ahead. They cross this river. He sends him ahead. He knows that his brother Esau, whom he deceived and robbed of like a lot of money, the birthright, and he's thinking, Esau is so ticked, I am sure he's going to kill me. Now, maybe I just don't understand the culture then. I'm not quite sure why he sends his family ahead of him. <laughs> but he does, and he, he spends the night on the other side, and he is going to cross over and meet his brother, and an angel appears to him. And it says he wrestles with the angel. And the purpose of his wrestling was to receive a blessing from God. And he refused to release this angel from his grip. He had a pretty strong grip. The word Jacob actually means he grasps. He had a pretty strong grip, I guess. But he would not let the angel go. And he said this, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. You see, that is this type of earnest prayer that is insistent, that prays and prays and prays and says, God, I'm not moving until you do something, until you act on behalf of your people. That is when prayer gets into the very fabric, and I'll, I'll word it this way, into the DNA of his church. And when the church has that in them, then they pray earnestly, and there is this culture of prayer. The third thing I want us to see here, and it's a caution, but God will do whatever necessary if we are willing and have faith for it to maximize his glory. I'm going to suggest that the church, as they were praying for Peter, really did not pray exactly according to God's will. Now, maybe it was just those at Mary's house. Maybe somebody thinking that they were, you know, leadership material and someone, someone else said, I think we should pray for his religion. He said, you know what, guys, that's going overboard a little bit, okay? Let, let's just pray that when he goes on trial, God will be merciful and release him. I, I don't know how exactly that happened, but within that gathering there, they all prayed the same way. And it seems rather doubtful that they prayed that God would send an angel to break the chains off of Peter's hands and feet, walk him out of the prison cell, out of the, out of the, the, the prison itself, and be free. I mean, that would have truly been a bold prayer. Now, I'm not going to look down upon their praying. We don't know exactly how they pray. All we do know is that when Peter knocks on the door, it surprises them. Have you, have you ever prayed for something and prayed for something, and when it happened, you says, oh my goodness, I don't believe it. You know, maybe that's our problem, church, that when we pray and pray and pray and God actually does it, we say, I don't believe it. You see, that's not a culture of prayer. That's maybe the form of prayer. I, I don't know, but when a culture of prayer gets a hold of a church, 
they pray and they pray. And however God acts, the church rejoices. Even if it's not in accordance with the way they want it done. I mean, have you ever experienced that? You pray to him. I mean, feeling so, yes, this is how God wants me to pray. And God does it totally different, but he does something. And I'm going to tell you this. What he does is to maximize his glory. Can you let him do that? Can you allow God to do whatever he wants to do to maximize his glory and make sure that Mike Curtis or whoever you are, that you are not the one who is honored and glorified? God is going to do that. He rarely will allow someone to stand up. Boy, I, let me tell you how I prayed and how God answered me. No. <laughs> you remember the story of the three, Gideon's 300? I, I think God needs to cleanse us of that really bad attitude. He whittled the army of 32,000 down to 300. And just use that as an image for what God needs to do in you. He needs to get rid of a lot of me and self so that we will allow him to receive all the glory. But this is the attitude. This is the part of the culture of prayer. In Ephesians 3.22, it says, Now unto him, and it's interesting, Meredith quoted this. I had it written down for us, just saying. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Is that not cool, church? Is that not the awesome God that we serve? He listens and he says, oh man, but I've got a better plan. And it's going to be a plan that will maximize my glory. Are you ready for this one? And Peter's knocking at the door. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the life of prayer that I want to experience. God truly is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And I remember that time in which I was praying years ago. I've shared with you, so I'll be brief, in which I'd, I was looking around doing paint touch-up, and I, I realized, man, I've got so much work to do here. I've got to get this done because I have to, I have to leave to, to go back down south four hours, and I've got to get this work done. And if it rains, I'm not going to be able to. I, I don't know what I'm going to do at that point. I'll just have to leave the next morning. I don't know. But I need to get this done, and I pray, God, please hold off the rain. Please hold off the rain. You know, maybe it rained just a little bit, and then I'll get a little bit more work done, but help me be able to get the work done. And you know what? It didn't rain at all. And that night, as I'm telling my wife the story, you're not going to believe this, Meredith, but, and I share with her, she says, well, I've got one better than that. Because the very reason why it didn't rain was because Juliana, who was five years old, was praying like a general, marching. She was marching, and she was praying, and she's saying, God, and please don't let it rain anywhere around my daddy. May it rain all around him, but may it not rain on him. And can I say this, that I saw the clouds, and I mentioned this to Mary, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but, and she's laughing. Uh, <laughs> but the clouds, it just seemed they would be over here, and then over here, and then back here, the rain clouds. You know what it's like when it rains in the, the Florida central, central Florida summer. You can see sheets of rain. It's like gray. You can't see anything through it. It's raining over there, and now it's raining over there, and then it's raining over here, and it's raining over here, and it never once rained where I was. Because God desires to maximize his glory, and God took a really, honestly, so simple for him to do experience, and he planted that in Juliana's heart. And Juliana is a prayer warrior, 
We got that word when she was still in, in the oven when my wife was pregnant with her. Uh, she was going to be a warrior. You see, this is the nature of God. I'm just going to say this, though. The culture of prayer, though, number four, the culture of prayer is also seen in the simple day-to-day things of life. A.T. Pearson wrote the well-known biography of George Mueller, and when he had a conversation with him one time, he just writes this. It's so simple. He said, well, George Mueller and I were talking, and George Mueller was writing notes down. Suddenly, his pen stopped working, and he closed his eyes for a few seconds, and he was certain he was praying, and then he started writing again, (laughs) and the pen worked. And he thought, man, how simple. I mean, (laughs) really, God healed his pen. (laughs) Really. But these are the simple things that God wants to do in our lives because George Mueller knew what it meant to have a culture of prayer. And you can read the book. It's, it's probably the most well-known autobiography of George Mueller. It's been around for over 100 years. And George Mueller knew how to pray for vision in because he had a culture of prayer that he walked in. And I'm just going to shift gears right here and close us out with this. I'd like us to just take a moment right now and allow this to minister to some of you. Peter is in chains. And God, in answer to prayer, comes and breaks those chains. And some of us have chains just like that. They're chains of addictions, of sins, of emotion, of hurt, of worry, you name it. And you are bound. And God is speaking to you right now. I want you to be behold my glory if you would respond and pray earnestly and allow me to break the chains that are binding you. This is the God that we serve. This is the cross that Jesus was hung on that not only has the power to forgive and wash away sins, but break the sin chains. That he came to deliver us, save us, rescue us from our sin. Do you need to be rescued today? Does God need to step into your life and break those chains? Because I was born a sin addict. I was bound. And until we come to Christ and he sets us free, you, my friend, are bound. And you need to be set free. I'm going to close in prayer right now. And I'm just going to ask you, if the Spirit of God has spoken something to your heart about prayer, could you now respond to that? Allow God, for some of you, he's wanting to break some of those chains. For others, there are things that you have actually given up on in praying. And this word of insistence and stretching is for you today. But how does God want you to pray? Father, I ask you in Jesus' name.
that your spirit would stir up in our midst this culture of prayer, this total reliance upon God, this knee-jerk reaction, of course I will pray. Even praying with simplicity, God, would you just heal my pen right here? I ask you, Lord, please, may we be a people of prayer, earnest, stretching prayer. And I ask you, Lord, please, come in. Invade this little thing called my life and rescue me. Come to my aid and help me here or set me free there. Or answer this prayer here or over here. God, I can't do this. I need your financial provision. I have tried. I've tried to get more work. I've tried to get higher wages. I will do anything to support my family. But God, I'm in financial need again. And I just ask you, Lord, teach us to be a people that you can stretch and build in us this prayer, this prayer life, this agonizing, travailing prayer, this culture of prayer. For those who are bound up, even as Peter was, God, today, would you set them free? Would you speak truth and would your Holy Spirit come right now and minister in the powerful name of Jesus Christ? If God is speaking to you right now, you can kneel where you are at and pray or you can kneel at the altar. We can just pray for you wherever you are at. But I want us to pray right now. If I could just have, as people come up, could I have our leaders just come up and lay hands on people and pray for them? Let's do that. Awesome.